getting a great cheer, but it's Stecker of East Germany tying up a bit and Raylene Bow gets the silver medal. And it'd be nice to have a gold medal, but I wasn't first over the line. And yeah, I do enjoy watching my sport, but I still wonder who's on the juice and who's not. The guys that were winning the races were the guys who were actually doing the wrong thing. And I think the integrity of, of sport loses in that situation. I'd never thought I'd be competing at four Olympic Games, so it's something um, extremely special and something I'm really proud of. You know, we haven't had an international game in 18 months and we're heading to the Olympics in a week or so to play the best of the best. So it's definitely been challenging. Yeah, regardless if it's able-bodied or, or para, I still need to find a way to be able to win the points. So for me, that's totally uh, exactly the same approach. The Paralympic side, I mean, we're going for gold. So even if I fall short, I think I'm going to be incredibly happy with uh, everything that I've got to put into it. to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast. I'm Tim Gable. Alongside me is Sport Integrity Australia's Assistant Director of Sports Engagement, Triple Olympic Gold Medalist, Patria Thomas. Hello, Patria. Got some exciting guests on today, including Raylene Boyle, an iconic figure in Australian sport. Yeah, it'll be very exciting to hear from someone of Raylene's calibre and um, she's got some... Uh you know, great experience over the years and uh, it'll, be, yeah, it'll be really interesting to have a chat to her. And Melissa Tapp is also going to be joining us. Melissa, of course, is a table tennis player who represents Australia at both the Paralympics and also the Summer Olympic Games. So quite incredible achievement. She did it in Rio and she's back again in Tokyo. Yeah, Millie's um, got an amazing story that she's been able to compete at both Paralympic and Olympic level. Uh, I think it's a terrific story and she has a really unique perspective on on the differences between the two events as well. And water polo player Bromman Knox also joining us today. Bromman competing in her fourth Olympic Games as a water polo player. It's a rough sport. She's doing very well to get there for four Olympics. Yeah, look. To go to even more than one Olympics is a great uh, achievement, but to go to four is incredible. It just shows um, such longevity in a career. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at it, it's over a very long period of time that you have to be at your best and um, be able to be good enough to be picked to represent Australia. And even longer this time around because of the postponed games. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a long stretch for these guys leading into the uh, the, the Tokyo Games. and. Uh, you know, I certainly admire their um, persistence and it would have been tough and I can only imagine how I would have felt if, if uh, you know, an Olympics I was preparing for was delayed by a year and it would have been pretty hard. But um, that motivation and that, I suppose, desire to, to represent the country is, is strong enough. Good on you, Patria. We're going to be joining Raylene, Millie Tapper and also Bromman Knox in just a moment. But it's Ray Boyle, Ray Boyle, winner of the 100 metres, who now wins the gold at 200 metres. And the time, 22.7 seconds. A great run by this 19-year-old Australian who finished the Games with three gold medals. But it's Stecker, Stecker going for her gold medal and Boyle, Raylene Boyle challenging. The Australian getting a great cheer, but it's Stecker of East Germany tying up a bit and Raylene Boyle gets the silver medal and Savinska of Poland the bronze. 
Kamara, but Jocelyn Hoyt-Smith has run very steadily on the inside. Has overtaken Gladys Taylor. Is closing the gap on Raylene Boyle. Now, can she survive that pace? Because at the moment, she's running exceptionally well. So too is Raylene Boyle. Raylene Boyle and Michelle Scott outsider. Michelle Scott chasing the Australian. Raylene Boyle comes off the bend slightly the better. And everybody's standing in the stadium. Raylene Boyle, who's recovered from injury, has got four yards to spare. Michelle Scott in bronze, beginning to overtake Jocelyn Hoyt-Smith. It's going to be Raylene Boyle for goal. Michelle Scott for Wales. Jocelyn Hoyt-Smith to bronze. Gladys Taylor in fourth. And there's a girl who ends her career in front of the Duke of Edinburgh and the Prime Minister and does magnificently. It's brought this crowd to its feet, and rightly so, Raylene Boyle at 31. A magnificent career, and that was a magnificent run. Well, our first guest today on Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast is the champion Australian sprinter Raylene Boyle, an iconic figure in Australian sport. Raylene won three silver medals at the Olympic Games, beaten by East German athletes later discovered to be part of a state-sponsored doping regime. There have been calls over the years for Raylene to be awarded a retrospective gold medal, but it hasn't eventuated. Raylene Boyle joins us now. Raylene, you were just 16 when you were selected for your first Olympics in Mexico. You won silver in the 200 metres. Looking back now, is it hard to comprehend what you achieved as a 16-year-old? It's, look, retrospectively, you're always going to view things quite differently. I I was a kid from Coburg, one of the outer northern suburbs of Melbourne. You know, I didn't know anything about the world, really, and all I could do was run fast, and I had no idea what I was going to. I thought it would be a quick turnaround trip, and, um, and it wouldn't be that long, but, you know, it was around the world, and... We were away for six weeks, and it was it was quite um, quite a serious growth phase in my life. Raylene, do you look back fondly on your Olympic experiences over the years? Um, yes, they were enormous growth periods for me, and really, the Olympics without them, there'd be nothing to look to 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 make um, make you a better person or a better athlete. Um, it was the thing you you looked at to aspire to was a, an Olympic gold medal. Uh, obviously, my first games showed me the fact that I was actually capable of of winning a gold medal, and I took that on board and used it to inspire myself for Munich and in '72 and um, Montreal and also Moscow. But yeah, very different, very different life. Yes. Just on, um, I, I guess, most of Australia at the time, 1976, were watching you in action in Montreal. Do you ever look back on that time? I mean, the replay showed that you didn't full start in that first attempt and obviously two full starts and you were disqualified from the 200 metres. Have you, have you looked back and, and sort of you know, thought, oh, what might have been at the time? The way I look back at it, really is I look back at what happened in Munich with um, the East German systematic performance enhancing. Yes. Um, and then I look to Montreal and the fact that I um, was accused of breaking twice and, and really I was in fantastic shape in Montreal. I, I very definitely think that I would have been a big challenger for that gold medal. Um, I 
look back at and I just hope people don't remember me for those things and for or remember me as an athlete for those things or for whinging. I've never really whinged about it. It's just you know, what happened. It is what it was. And and there was an awful lot more to my career than that. So Absolutely. I hope people don't mm. just look at that and remember me for those things. I mentioned a moment ago that there had been a bit of a, a call for you to be awarded a retrospective gold medal. Um, it, did you sort of buy into that? Do you think, well, that'd be nice? Or how did you feel about that? Look, I, I've never bought into that. People over the years have have said that various groups have said it and lobbied for it, but really I, yeah, and it'd be nice to have a gold medal, but I wasn't first over the line. So I don't know. There's different ways to view it. You can say, well, Renata Sticker um, was loaded with testosterone, and sure, a male is always going to fit beat a female over the distances mm. I ran. Oh, look, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, but because people really do look upon you incredibly fondly in Australia. They they just love Raylene Boyle. Uh, you became the first woman, by the way, to be a flag bearer for the team in Montreal and it was celebrated by one and all and you continue to be celebrated to this day. Um, how, how do you feel about that adulation that you receive? Because a lot of people just love Raylene Boyle. It's wonderful to be admired. Um, yeah. I... I um, I think it's it's very nice that people could appreciate my running and and probably the attitude I had about it too because I was out there to have fun as well as run fast. I wasn't just there to run fast and and be an angry competitor competitor. I was a really happy athlete. I I had the best time. I saw the world. I had great experiences and still the opportunities from that period of time um are coming my way. So yeah, I just think it's great that the community still remembers Raylene Boyle. And I, I, for example, was at the gym this morning and the old guys there, they, the old Vietnamese vets, most of them are, they, um, they always comment, you know, when are you getting that gold medal or yeah. <laughs> you had too much fun, you laughed all the time or, yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. Just, just makes you a bit embarrassed when you're a bit chubby like I am now. <laughs> Raylene, with Tokyo coming up very shortly, um, do you still follow the athletics or sport in general? Oh, how honest do I be, Patria? I follow sport very hard. I don't use a computer, so it's very hard for me to follow sport in newspapers and on the news because um, and the only thing that's talked about really is football. And I'm not that interested in it. I get bits and pieces of snippets of what's happening in the sport from various people I talk to. And, yeah, I do enjoy watching my sport, but I still wonder who's on the juice and who's not. It's um, quite incredible yeah. that that the takers are way in front of the, the people trying to stamp it out. Yeah. Are you concerned about the integrity of sport still? You think, well, you know, it seems as though the scientists are ahead of the, the anti-dopers at times? I think that um, the integrity of sport um, lost its appeal to me a very long time ago when, you know, being a little bit close to the sport back then, I knew who was on the juice and who wasn't pretty much, you know, you sort of had an idea. And the guys that were winning the races were the guys who were actually doing the wrong thing. And I think the integrity of, of sport loses in that situation.
You've had quite a, a public profile in terms of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. You've been out there. You've, was that hard to come out and, and be the public face of of those campaigns, given that I guess you'd had the spotlight because of a runner, then you, you're back in the spotlight uh, because of those campaigns? At the period of time when I was sick, really sick, and I kept it pretty close to my chest for a long time, so to speak, um, it, it was tough. I didn't want any publicity. I just wanted to go through the treatment, get it over and done with, hear whether I was going to live or not and decide how I was going to move forward in my life. But once I actually came to terms with the fact that it can happen to anybody, I did nothing wrong, was just one of those things that happened. Um, and I met the right person and, and got involved with the right organisation, it was actually my pleasure, and I know that sounds silly, mm. was my pleasure to be able to use my face and my profile to make things better for the people, the women in this country and the men um, diagnosed particularly with breast cancer. Did it um, train you, do you think, you know, your running career, you, you know, you're a tough runner, you, but you had fun. Did that, I guess, prepare you for, for something like what you went through with, with breast and ovarian cancer and that, you know, forthright view and that very positive attitude that you had? It actually put everything in place for me. It made um, going to the Olympics and winning silver medals not that bad a big deal or not that much of a big deal. Yeah. Um, when I was going through the cancer, it was more like I was fighting for my life, not fighting to win a running race. And, I'm, you know, I knew I wanted to win the race, but unfortunately it's not quite as easy as it is in sport. Um but I did. It helped me. The, the sport gave me a leg in to what I was going to go through, um, even though I didn't have any idea what the treatment was going to be like. The sport, having to go to the track every day and train, even if you felt like absolute rubbish, um, with the cancer treatment, you felt like rubbish all the time, but you still had to go through it to save your life. And I wanted to live, so I did it. Mentally, I guess you're a very tough person as well. But but it would have affected you mentally um, going through something like that? Yeah, it did. And as I said, it put everything in perspective in life. And really, I suffer the consequences of that with depression. I think Patria's had depression too. Depression and anxiety and and a lot of those other issues. But I went through a lot of years of pretty poor health. And really, it was like a 24-hour turnaround from being perfectly healthy um, still my racing weight at 44, still running 5K a day as exercise, working in horticulture that I loved but was a, you know, was hard on the body to being a person with cancer who didn't really know what the long-term um, proposition was in life. And, yeah, it was a quick turnaround. Raylene, you mentioned going to the gym. How's your health going now? And uh, are you able to get out and do the things that you want to do? I've just turned 70 um, and no, I don't really do the physical work I used to do in the garden and around the home, but I do go to the gym and I do exercise every day. I've got a golden retriever that insists on a walk every day. So I go out and I, well, it's more of a little bit of a march, um, 4K every morning. And I go to the gym three or four times a week and I work with a personal trainer. And to be truthful, I, perf I, I absolutely love it. I love it. It's, um, I don't have to do it anymore, but I want to do it. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I've just rejoined the gym again, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to find my mm -hmm. way back to a bit of fitness. 
Yeah, it takes it takes time, Patria. You just got to let yourself get over the fact that you're not an elite athlete anymore and that you're not chasing gold medals anymore. And you go there and you have a bit of fun, a bit of a laugh. I have a laugh with my personal trainer. But we still push out some pretty big weights for a, a grey-headed old bag and um, a skinny little personal trainer. You're going to watch the Olympics, Raylene, or, you know, sort of passing glance? How do you feel about it? And how, Look, how, I'll how, watch. Yeah. I will watch with interest and I will be able to join in conversations with my friends and family about what's going on. But really, I think the Olympics, uh, they're adding too many sports and I don't know what sort of ownership they want over the world, but they're heading in a different direction to to what my heart loved about um, mm. the Olympics when it was really just us lot, not everybody playing the game. Yeah, so the, a lot of sports have been added. I think they're looking at adding more sports as well, trying to get younger viewers and younger people involved in the Olympic Games. But um, as I say, a lot of people sort of question some of the sports that are coming in, but they're there, they're part of the program. And yeah, I guess uh, it'll be that, you know, part of the Olympics going forward. I, I love it when it was just a city had an Olympics. Now a country has an Olympics almost or a southeast Queensland or, you know, it's not just one space. And, I, and the argument, I suppose, is that everyone gets to participate to a certain degree, talking from the community's point of view, but just doesn't appeal to me. doesn't appeal to me that any sport where they don't call the Olympic Games the most significant thing in their sport I don't believe they should be there. Yes. All right. Great to have a chat to you, Raylene. It's been fascinating to talk about, you know, some of your experiences and how you're going these days. But uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much for joining us Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Patria. Thanks, Raylene. All the best. Thank you. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Australia, no, it's bronze for them. It's bronze as it was four years ago. Oh, but they've lost it. They've lost it. The goalkeeper's lost the ball. And incredibly, Ontel has scored. 11 all. Second period of overtime, about to get underway. Australia have the narrowest of leads. Can they hang on for another three minutes to claim bronze just as they did four years ago? Beijing, here's a swim off there. Yes, Australia back in front. All smiles now. Beats off. It's a narrow lead. And another exclusion foul. That should do it. If that has crossed the line, it has. Australia have taken the bronze medal. Beatworth scores a goal. The second goal of overtime. And the celebrations can now begin. Our next guest is water polo player Bronwyn Knox, who's competing in her fourth Olympic Games, becoming the first Australian female water polo player to be selected for four Olympics. And Bronwyn is joining us now on the Clean and Gold podcast series. Bronwyn, you've always stated that you love being challenged and you find that addictive. As you 
I guess, are in the midst now of the Olympic Games preparation. Do you still feel the same anticipation as you did heading into your first Olympic Games? Oh, definitely. I think um, fourth time around has actually been way more challenging with everything that's sort of come out through COVID and all the challenges that's thrown. And, you know, we haven't had an international game in 18 months and we're heading to the Olympics in a week or so to play the best of the best. So it's definitely been challenging to say the least, but it's also exciting and being part of um, something that's never happened before. It's going to be um, interesting to see what we can do. What has been the biggest challenge for you then? Um, oh, where to start? I think... Um, for me is having that really long break um, during the first COVID lockdown and not being able to train. It sort of took everyone by surprise so there were no, um, nothing in place for us to sort of stay engaged, stay involved and being an older athlete, you know, once you stop, the body just starts to disintegrate on you and getting back and trying to start again, there was just um, roadblock after roadblock in regards to like niggles and injuries and new things that popped out of nowhere that you weren't expecting. You know, I usually, I, I know my injuries or my injury prone zones and I, you know, make sure I'm on top of those, but to have things come out of left field that you weren't even expecting, um, it sort of, it made it um, extremely challenging to get on top of things when you just didn't know what was going to happen next. Bron, it's obviously been a challenging period for athletes all around the world, um, not knowing whether the games would go ahead initially and, uh, but now there's the finish line in sight. So what are you expecting when you get over there in terms of performance and experience? Um, I think for us or for my team, it's not, you know, usually we go in knowing where we sit in the world, um, who our trouble teams are, who, you know, we've got the one up on. But now we're just going in focusing solely on what we need to do. We just want to play our game, play it well and play it to the best of our ability. And I think if we focus on us and do our job, then the rest will fall into place. And I think it's something we haven't really done before because we've had that knowledge of where we sit in the world and how people are, people are performing. So I think having that focus solely on us is, and what we can control is going to be extremely important. You mentioned you haven't played an international match for 18 months, but have you had the opportunity to get together as a team um, in Australia and train, do a lot of training together? Yeah, we've sort of, um, since COVID um, sort of happened, we spent all of 2021 pretty much together moving around the country, um, depending on um, border closures and whatnot. So for us, um, it's been great to spend that time together to train full-time, um, you know, 12 to 15 times a week together playing against each other. We've had some boys come in to play against, um, which is challenging in itself um, because they're faster and stronger, but we like to think we're a bit bit smarter than them. So we, uh, it's always good to see what um, we can do against the boys. So it's it's been great to have that time together um, and prepare as a team. You've got quite a few degrees. Do you use the, the time away from the pool to, to further your studies even more because you've got health, you've got law, um, you've got a biomedical degree uh, or you have been studying anyway for that. Uh, where are you up to with your studies and do, have, you, have you used this time, this downtime to, to further study? Um, I actually completed all my studies in preparation for Tokyo the first time around. Um, okay. I sort of timed it out perfectly and then having this extra time has been really good in helping me really define what I want to do post-Olympics um, and transition from athlete into the professional world. So for me, it's been a whole 
um, bit about networking and getting to know people and signing up to the mentor programs and um, really getting to know what the professions out there, what what's involved and how I can um, really start to engage with something outside of just me as an athlete, as a sports person. So is it a different feel for you going into your fourth Olympics and, and what does it mean to be competing in four Olympic Games? Um, I'd never thought I'd be competing at four Olympic Games, so it's something um, extremely special and something I'm really proud of. But every Olympic Games is different. You sort of never know what you're walking into. You've got a different team around you. And um, for me, I think this one's going to be special given that, you know, having this time off international competition has actually made me really um, aware of how much I enjoy it and thrive and love it. So I think going back to being able to play potentially my last international game, it's going to be something special. And I think having that unexpected cutoff is actually um, reinvigorated me to make the most out of every single um, opportunity we get. So I think I'm really looking forward to just hitting that water and going. Ron, you're a veteran of the Stingers team. What advice will you give, uh, will we share with the rookies on the team about playing at an Olympic Games? Oh, we've actually got that meeting this afternoon of um, with all the debutants to sort of share our experiences and talk through what you could expect, what you might expect. And I think for me, what I wish someone would have told me is just really take a moment to take it all in. Like I can barely remember a lot of things from my first Olympic Games. Like I remember some of the feelings and emotions, but it's hard to really pick out points and memories um, without having visual cues. So I think just really taking that moment to sit and reflect and enjoy it rather than being overwhelmed by um, the atmosphere that it does create. Well, it's going to be different. No crowds, no celebrating. Uh, basically, thirty thirty minutes to eat a meal in the in the dining hall. So, um, a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, it's very different. Um, but what we like to say for our team is a lot of our European counterparts they thrive on big crowds, whereas us back home we don't really get big crowds. So it's going to be like playing at home in front of just your family and friends that you know are watching. So we're we're hoping it gives us a little bit of an advantage in some sense. Uh, given you, you're one of the veterans in the team, what, what role will you play, you think, in the Olympics? Um, for me, I think it's just there to support um, however I possibly can, whether it's um, leading through my experience or taking a seat back and watching um, the youngsters shine because there's such incredible talent coming through our team. So I think it's going to be a day-by-day and my my role will change, which is great because I've had experience in both and I'm more than happy to, you know, showcase all the talent we've got through and just play that supporting role or being the one who has used used that pressure and be able to step up and guide people through it. Are you going to be questioned a lot, do you think, in the lead-up to the start of the Olympics because of your experience also being a clean sport educator too with Sport Integrity Australia? I'd imagine you're still getting bombarded by some of your, your teammates about what they can and can't take and Definitely. give advice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah always. Um, whenever we see um, the doping control officers turn up at training, uh, I'm always someone they sort of go, they ask me, go, oh, can I do this? Can I do that? And I sort of have to um, help assist and direct them in the right way. But, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's great to be that person that people can come to and ask advice to. It sort of 
um, it makes you able to reflect on your experiences and what you've learned and be able to pass that down is is phenomenal. Bron, I know you're not quite at the end of your career yet, but what, what has been one of your most uh, proud moments of, of of your very long and successful career? Oh, just one of my most proud moments. Um, there's so many. I think the very first time I got named captain um, back in 2009, um, it was just a small tournament. It wasn't anything special, but having that um, responsibility to lead the team out for our team announcements, for the anthem, and then having that time after the coach finishes talking for me to rev up the team, I, I hadn't prepared anything and I think I just sort of went with my gut and that was probably one of the proudest moments of being able to look into the eyes of all my teammates and just think I'm here, um, I'm leading this amazing group of women and I can't believe it. Yes, uh, remember your involvement too in that Defeat of Russia in 2010 at the FINA World Cup and you played an incredible game on that day. Yeah, um, there's, oh, there's just um, <laughs> like there's so many great games that it's uh, – eventually they all meld into one a little bit but there's always those little special ones where you're able to beat some of your rivals and um, you take it up and down the pool time and time again and there's no stoppages and it's just helpful leather up and down and – to get that final whistle and know you've come out on top is is thrilling and we've seen it in both of my bronze medals. We went to penalty shootouts against Hungary and um, they've been fourth for the last three years, so they've got they've got something to prove when they come back this year. Uh, just on, on post Olympics, you've already mentioned there that you you're starting to set life up after the Olympic Games. Are you, are you worried about what lies ahead post Tokyo? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. I think we've done a lot of work um, on having plans in place and having support systems, but you you don't know what you don't know. So uh, it's sort of stepping into this brand new world and it's exciting and scary and everything and you don't want to make the wrong choice and um, go down the wrong path. So I think there's, there's so many things to be um, a bit wary of, but it's also so exciting to be able to be unleashed and um, – be in this whole brand new world and of um, that opens up to you and you sort of get your life back and you're not, um, you know, back um, treated a bit like a schoolgirl on tour where you've got all these rules and things you've got to check in and you suddenly get all this freedom to schedule your own life and that can also be really daunting. But, yeah, it's also exciting to be able to step out and um, become your own person. And you probably don't have to read every label on anything that you you read in the future too. <laughs> yes, yeah. Stop panicking every time you're not knowing exactly what, what you're cooking and what you're doing and what you're eating. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's um, something I'm definitely looking forward to relaxing a little bit, just that stress. I've always wanted to ask Bron, like I, I love water polo and I've loved playing. I've never played competitively, but um, can you tell us just how rough it is under the water? Um, well, it is a contact sport, so you do um, cop an elbow or a knee every now and then. Uh, the water is a great part um, as it slows down any impact. It takes a bit of the force away. But the higher up you get, the more skilled players you come across, um, 
it becomes less about the grappling and the contact and more about the skill and finesse of the game, the strength of legs, the power of movement, be able to read the ball and be in the space before it gets there. I think it's um, something that you can only see at that top level of that beauty and grace and flow. And um, there obviously is contact, but um, the more skilled players, you know how to protect yourself. You put yourself in a your body in a place where you're not going to get injured or the impact is not going to um, uh, hit anything that's going to um, break. So it is it is a contact sport and things do happen. I think last Olympics, one of the girls um, fractured her eye socket, unfortunately, and that meant she could no longer take part. But, you know, the more you get through the game, the more you learn about it, the more you're able to protect yourself from those sorts of injuries and um it's part of the fun of the game. You don't know what your opponent's going to do and how to be one step ahead of them and get out of any holds or grapples you get into. Ron, you mentioned that obviously it's a bit hard to judge uh, how the form of all the teams around the world. Who are you expecting to be your main competitors in uh, Tokyo? Um, obviously, USA are world number one. They've sort of been world number one the last three years. Um, we were the first team to knock them off after I think they had about 70 games unbeaten and we knocked them off in January 2020 before COVID was um, declared the pandemic. Uh, so we were, we were right up there with them and we're looking forward to really taking it to them in all those comps we had lined up. But you've got, like for us, we've got to get through the round games against some of the Europeans who have got Spain who are always up in the medals at the Olympics. You've got um, the Netherlands who uh, recently topped some of the European games. So it's just uh, you just never know because on any given day there's one goal between each team and it's a matter of millimetres and you just never know which way um, the victors are going to fall. Ron, uh, great to have a chat to you. We'll better let you go to the team meeting, but thanks very much for joining us today on Onside's Clean and Gold podcast series. Thanks very much for joining us today. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. And now she has seven gold medal points. Melissa Tapper from Australia. And she continues to create history. Melissa Tapper wins Australia's first gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in table tennis. An outstanding performance. She wins three games Mm -hmm. to one. This is Sport Integrity Australia's Clean and Gold podcast with Tim Gable and triple Olympic gold medalist Patria Thomas as we celebrate the Tokyo Olympics and Tokyo Paralympics. And joining us now is table tennis player Melissa Tapper and Millie, as she's known, is competing in both the Olympics and Paralympics in Tokyo. In Rio, she became the first Australian to compete in both the Summer Olympics and Paralympics Melissa won gold in the table tennis at the 2018 Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. And Melissa, just in the lead up firstly to the Olympic Games, how do you focus on the Olympics when you know you've got the Paralympics immediately after it? Is, is it hard to pace yourself um, going into into both of these events? Um, uh, I guess there's a little bit, but uh, again, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've got uh, an incredible team around me to help manage that side of things. Uh, but yeah, this time around as well, it will be 
a little bit different, but it's nice um, getting into the venue, the village, you know, understanding the transport systems and and getting a feel for all of that. So um, being able to compete at the Olympics, I'll then finish and have about two, two and a half weeks in between before then going back into the village for the Paralympics. So I think definitely though the second time around, I should be a little bit more comfortable with how everything is uh, running. <laughs> Millie, you've had the unique experience of playing at the elite level in both para and able-bodied events. Is there a difference to the way you approach it or is it just all in for you? Yeah, no, no, no difference. I mean, everyone that I compete against is turning up to try and play their best and win. Um, and I'm doing exactly the same thing. So every athlete that you play has a different strength, a different weakness. And yeah, regardless if it's able-bodied or, or para, I still need to find a way to be able to win the point. So for me, that's just totally uh, exactly the same approach. Do you have a preference, Paralympics, Olympics? <laughs> no, no, that's always a tough question. Can't I can't um, pick a favourite, but um, both both have different experiences that happen. Um, but I've always grown up in the able-bodied world. But I am incredibly uh, thankful to the the Paralympics Australia for um, showing me the the Paralympic world because yeah, without that. Uh, it would have been quite different and I absolutely love the ability to be able to play in both. Yes, your disability, you've got uh, nerve damage, haven't you? Can you describe exactly, you know, what it was that that happened and how you became uh, not only an able-bodied table tennis player but then moved into the Paralympics? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I was born, I was 11 pound two. So I was quite a whopper size of a baby um, and mum delivered me naturally. So because of the size, I ended up getting stuck and I had to be pulled out by my right arm and that completely tore the nerves in between my neck and shoulder. So I think it would have been about four months old that I then had uh, the operation where they took nerves from the back of both my calf muscles joined into the ones in my shoulder that were torn. So I still have uh, like a small amount of movement um, and ability to to use my arm, but it hasn't grown and developed as much as my left. So um, I, I, I wear a brace pretty much all the time. So that makes life much more easier. <laughs> I can pretty much do whatever it is I need to do. But if you look at it in terms of uh, in the Paralympic world, it, with my serve, I can't use my wrists, so I can't um, pronate and so forth. So when I serve, I have an exemption for my serve because I can't do what's considered a legal serve. But then after that, it's all, um, yeah, fair play. <laughs> What drew you to table tennis, Millie? Of all the sports you could have gone to, what what was it about table tennis that you love? Uh, I think what isn't there to love about table tennis, really? Um, as a kid growing up, I loved playing every sport that there was. Uh, I had an awesome PE teacher in primary school who just encouraged all of us to get in and give everything a go. So it was just one Friday afternoon we were able to leave the the school grounds and go play a sport like you could choose one so I had played all the others decided to give table tennis a go and I mean I was terrible at it I mean I couldn't hit the ball if I did it would hit the back barrier or go under the table but I really enjoyed myself when I did it so 
I was more inclined to go back and I started, yeah, just once a week at the local club in, in town and, yeah, my my love for it pretty much just grew from there. You made some interesting comments over the years and one I really like is no player is para or able-bodied in my head. So you just treat everybody the same. That whoever you're playing, they're either para or, or able-bodied, but in, in your mind they're, they're just the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the same way in terms of like how I would approach a match. Like, um, yeah, when when you play, everyone just wants to play their best and do their best to try and win. So it it doesn't matter what you consider being an able-bodied or a para uh, athlete. Everyone's still competing to try and to try and win. And I would imagine that the Paralympic world really is, is a totally different world than the Olympics, isn't it? it? You mentioned a moment ago that there are major differences and, you know, you look at the perspective of the Paralympics, a lot of people there have overcome enormous disadvantage and hurdles to get there in the first place. Yeah, it, it is a very different um, way, I think, that a lot of the times things are approached. But the, one of the most incredible things for me was before, just as I was getting involved in Paralympics as a youngster, I didn't know that they existed. So I didn't when I went to my first tournament, I didn't really know what I was walking into. But when I went into this international stage uh, where people from all around the world were playing table tennis, I mean, some had one arm, one leg, no legs, uh, were in a wheelchair, had to have the bat strapped to their hand, they could still play. But regardless of what is considered um, entering a tournament that's meant to be filled with athletes with a disability, the only thing I did notice was every athlete's ability to play table tennis. And I thought that was really cool because regardless of, you know, what may be considered a deficiency that someone has, they can find a way regardless to still be able to get on with the job and and play table tennis really, really amazingly. So that was really cool. We're all looking forward to Tokyo going ahead. Um, In terms of your performance and experience expectations, um, what are you expecting when you get over there? (laughs) Um, It's going to be a bit of a hard one to, in terms of expectations, I think, but um, I think the AOC and PA have done a fantastic job in terms of preparing us um, for the fact that things are going to be quite different. <laughs> um, but but given that, I think, which is a bit of an odd thing that sometimes getting on the court and having, you know, the lights and normally people around and then playing can be sometimes the most uncomfortable thing. But I think this time around, for us, that's going to be when we'll get to be our most comfortable. <laughs> so um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the last additional 365 days that I got under my belt, um, what it is that I can end up doing out on the court. So for me, at the Olympics, um, I'm really excited just to try and fight for every point. It's going to be incredibly difficult, but if I know that I can make my competitors work incredibly hard to win the points that they win, then for me that that's my aim. Uh, and then the Paralympic side, I mean, we're going for gold, so uh, I'm setting the bar very high. So hopefully we'll build up to that. And even if I fall short, I think I'm going to be incredibly happy with uh, everything that I've got to put into it. Yeah, I believe that you'll be co-captain of the para table tennis team for Tokyo. Um, what does it mean to you to be in that leadership role and be able to, I suppose, lead by example? 
Yeah, it's a different sort of role for me being um, like named as a as a leader. Like, cause I've never looked at myself really as being a leader. I've sort of just been a bit more of a quiet achiever, and I'll just go about my business. I definitely find action um, a lot easier than than in terms of the outright kind of leadership. So I'm really enjoying the role. I'm I'm with um, two other um, captains as well, which, which are awesome. And I'm, I'm really, yeah, trying to take it on board and lead by example, but also try and give my fellow teammates any sort of help that I, I can give from the years that I've been playing so that they hopefully really enjoy their time over in Tokyo as well and get the most out of it. What about COVID? I would imagine that table tennis is a sport where you need somebody to practice with, don't you? Because, you know, you, you've got track and field runners, you've got marathon runners, you've got swimmers who can do it by themselves, but effectively playing table tennis, you do need to have somebody around you. Has that been hard during COVID? Yeah, um, I, I guess a little benefit though for me is my, my husband plays table tennis and at the time last year when we were in lockdown, my our housemate also was a table tennis player. Okay. So um, in, our, in our back room, we set up the table um, and we're able to practice out there. It was limited, but I mean, it was still better, better than nothing. But I have uh, an awesome uh, team around me, particularly from um, the Paralympic side. I mean, I had my two coaches online most days and being able to, I guess, capitalize on the little things and pay a little more attention to small aspects that in a normal day to day would probably get overlooked or not have so much time um, put into them. So even though like lockdown was, was difficult and it was not the most ideal situation, I am, I'm pretty impressed with how creative my team were and we still made the most of it. Yes. And just a, another question too on table tennis. It hasn't got the same profile as a lot of the major sports in Australia. You, you go to somebody like China and there are 20 million registered players, <laughs> uh, which is quite extraordinary. <laughs> uh, you know, do you feel as though once you get out of Australia, uh, there is a greater recognition of your sport? Yeah, it, it's it's growing in Australia, which is really cool. I still remember from uh, like a youngster not really knowing much about it, but I'm definitely seeing seeing it grow now even the most coolest thing is like when I was young I was like one of the only females like I was always in a male dominated training group but if I look now the females oh it's awesome seeing the younger girls come up which is really exciting but um yeah this time around I guess traveling overseas and having the Olympics and the Paralympics in a country like Japan where it's quite um a high like a very popular sport over there it's uh, one opportunity that we really get to have, I guess, what the other sport, bigger sports get on a general basis. I feel like this time around we'll get to sort of really enjoy that type of experience in Japan. So I'm, yeah, really looking forward to that as well. Ellie, I think uh, sports are, you know, a wonderful vehicle for teaching you great life lessons. Um, can you just share some of the lessons that you've learned over the years and ones that you'll take with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is a really um, very good point in terms of sport does teach you a lot, even um, that you shouldn't wash the dark clothes with the light clothes. Um, <laughs> when you start travelling on your own, you learn little things like that very quickly that my mother would have uh, frowned upon if, if I did at home. Um, 
but even just, yeah, having the independence and accountability for your actions and achieving goals and being able to work as a team, communication, um, it's everything that you take outside of the sporting world in, into the big world as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's just getting involved in sport is one of the best things someone can do. All right, Melly. Thanks very much for joining both Petra and myself today. And it's been um, it's been great talking to you. No doubt, uh, the whole city of Hamilton is going to be watching on. Um, <laughs> both the summer Olympics and also the uh, Tokyo Paralympics. It's going to be great to watch you in action. Thanks very much for joining us today on Onside Clean and Gold Series. Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> My name is Kerry Nola and I competed in the Australian Women's Quad Skull at the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. I also work in the anti-doping policy team at Sport Integrity Australia. My first tip for Tokyo is about being a Tokyo Olympian. I would just like to say that every Tokyo Olympian can be so proud of being selected in the Australian Olympic team. That in itself is one of the biggest achievements of so many athletes' sporting careers. Just to be on the starting line at the Olympic Games is phenomenal. Everything thereafter is a bonus. Of course, as an elite athlete, you will not be satisfied to just be there and will be wanting to win a medal and wanting to win the gold. All of these achievements are extra icing on the cake. You are all true champions and should be immensely proud of your efforts. My second tip is about the unique nature of these Tokyo Games. There are always challenges and disappointments that need to be overcome in elite sport. These Olympics are throwing up obstacles that have never been experienced before. It is well recognised that every setback presents an opportunity and the circumstances of these games are no different. While the lack of crowds and the segregation will prevent many of the amazing experiences usually offered by an Olympic Games, it will allow you as an athlete to fully focus on the competition, absent any distractions. And for many of you, that will allow you to be fully immersed in producing your best performance. My third tip is just breathe and capitalise on the moment. In all walks of life, including elite sport, the most important thing is just breathe. Along with a cup of tea, breathing can be the answer to everything. My final point, which is a sneaky number four, is just have fun and do your best no matter what, as being at the Olympics is an experience of a lifetime that will be with you forever. Thanks very much for joining us on Sport Integrity, Australia's Clean and Gold podcast. And Patria, some fascinating insights from Raylene Milley and Bronwyn Knox uh, in regard to the Olympics and Paralympics and Olympics gone by. Yeah, absolutely. It's always fascinating when you talk to people about their different experiences because, let's face it, everyone does take something different out of what they experience. Um, and it's uh, really interesting to have a chat to, to all of them. It's Patria Thomas, who is Sport Integrity Australia's Assistant Director of Sport Engagement, a triple Olympic gold medalist. I'm Tim Gable. We'll be back with more with the Clean and Gold podcast series very shortly. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au 
or check out our Clean Sport app.